You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Devin. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Uh, It's a joy to be here. It's a joy to see so many people. Uh, Devin said a bit. I'll I'll say a few things just to start introduce myself. Um, Like you said, I'm I'm Jackson Hanke. My wife and I, Michaela, um, have been members here at River City uh, for a couple years now. This church has been just a wonderful blessing to us uh, in many ways. It really has. Um, With that, too, I'm also a student at River City Institutes, like Devin said. Uh, tomorrow I'll be starting my, my fourth and, and last semester, which it seems really hard to believe. Um, on the one hand, it feels like it's gone by super fast, um, but on the other hand, I've had a number of people even this morning that have said, you know, I'm even starting to look like Pastor Devin <laughs> in some ways. Uh, so maybe it seems like, it feels like longer than, or it's been longer than it seems. I think that's a good thing, Devin. Uh, I take that as a compliment, so... Um, Anyway, yeah, so this morning, uh, you know, if you've been here this summer, um, we've just been kind of preaching through the book of Psalms, and that's the task for this morning, so I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 49. So if you have a Bible, you can please feel free to turn there. Um, If you don't have a Bible, uh, looks like Cole and Keeley on our strike team are just coming down the aisle. You can just put your hand up in the air, and they will give you a Bible, uh, and those are yours to keep. So if you want to follow along, there's also going to be words on the screen as well. All right, so we'll, uh, we'll start just by reading the text. Psalm 49. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. 
For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Amen. That is, that is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you. Um, again, I just pray and ask that you'd be with us this morning. I pray that your word would be clear and that it would compel us to worship you and to be obedient to you. God, you are more than enough for us. Help us to see that this morning and help us to fix our eyes on you. Amen. Now, as we begin to look at this psalm, it's um, it's like any other text in the Bible. There's a few things that, that we have to understand if we're going to interpret it properly. Um, but I do think in this psalm, um, it, it begins with sort of an introduction that helps us to do that. So I'm just going to start um, by looking at the first few verses, and uh, we're just going to start working through it kind of verse by verse. So I'm going to start with verses 1 through 3, and then we'll go from there. I'm going to read them one more time. It says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. So here the author is introducing the psalm to us. He tells us a few things. The first thing that we need to know is, is what is the audience of this psalm? Who is it intended to be heard by and intended to be read to? And in this case, the audience is a very broad one. Verse 1 and 2 make this clear. It's a message for all people, for every inhabitant of the earth. In verse 2, it, it's a message for all types of people, for the, for the high and for the low, for the rich and for the poor. I'm going to stop there for one second. I think that's important because we're going to see in this psalm, it may seem at times like the author is targeting the wealthy or the rich, I don't think that's exactly what he's doing. You know, instead, if you look at verse 6, he's really, he's targeting those who trust in their riches. They have a foolish confidence um, in, in wealth. And the goal, I think, in the rest of the psalm is he's going to show that, that wealth indeed is a foolish thing to trust in. And it's a foolish thing to live for. And that, that is a message that needs to be heard both by the rich who have money and by the poor who might greedily and sinfully desire money. You know, you hear that verse in the Bible oftentimes it says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that's very true. But it's also true that you don't have to have a lot of money to love money. You don't have to have a lot of money to, to be greedy. So this is a message for the rich. It's a message for the poor. It's a message for the high and for the low. It's for all people. Now the second thing... Uh, these verses introduce for us what type of psalm this is going to be. Um, the, the type of psalm that this is, it's, there, there's a few of them in the Bible, um, but it's a wisdom psalm, okay? They're not super common, but there's a number of them. Uh, psalm 73 is an example. It's very similar to this psalm. These types of psalms, often they're very reflective in nature. Uh, they're somewhat deep. They often focus on some sort of, some sort of practical aspect of life, and the goal is is to bring some sort of thoughtful, godly wisdom and insight to that aspect of life. And that's what we see in this psalm as well. It's meant to give us wisdom. 
Help us to think about the world and, and our lives in it. So that's one thing. Uh, we're going to see that pretty clearly in this psalm. You know, another thing I just want to mention, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of books in the Bible we call wisdom books. And one thing I want to just share about wisdom, truly biblical wisdom, is that it's not the same. It's not synonymous with just being intelligent, if that makes sense. To be, to be biblically wise doesn't just mean that you have some sort of high intellectual capacity or that you're very smart. That's really not what it means. It's really much more, in fact, about having the right perspective. It's about having the ability to see things as they really are and then to act accordingly. One example, this is just such a common refrain in the wisdom books of the Bible, is to say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. It's the beginning of all wisdom. You see, the wise man in the Bible is not the man who is the most intelligent, but it's the man who sees God as he truly is, and he lives his life in accordance with that. So it's it's so much about perspective. And this psalm today is very much about perspective. As we look at this psalm, there's something that I think the author is, is very clearly wanting to point us to. He's helping us to fix our eyes on something and that something is, is, I think it's this, I think it's the reality of eternity. That you and I, every one of us, we are eternal beings. We will have an eternal existence, and that eternal existence is going to make our entire lives on this earth seem like a breath and a vapor. And honestly, I think so often, one of the ways we, just, we, we lack the proper perspective is we fail to view our lives this way. I think often we go through life, and, and honestly, we live it like, like a racehorse with blinders on. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but, but often if you see racehorses, when they, when they run, they actually put these small blinders over their eyes. And it's meant to actually to narrow their vision and their focus. So the only thing that they can see is, is directly what's in front of them. And oftentimes, I think we can live just like that. All, all that we can see is our, is our earthly circumstances. All, all that we can see is our life on this earth. And all we can think about is how we can just protect that life and, and hold on to that life and make that life more comfortable and more easy. And sometimes that's just all that we can see. But as we read the Bible and as we look at this psalm, I think one thing that it very often does is it, it helps us to remove those blinders. It helps us to see the bigger picture of what God is doing, of what our lives are meant to look like and to be about, about what we're to think about, about what we're to value, about what we're to live for. And my hope as we go through this psalm is that we will, we will be able to, along with this author, fix our eyes on the reality of eternity And also, that then, we would be able to live accordingly, every day. Pray that we would leave here wiser than when we came in, with with a better perspective. Now, just to continue through this psalm, verses 4 through 6, I think this is kind of a continuance of the introduction. The author says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. 
Now, in verse 4, the author is continuing to speak about what he's going to share. And he says he's going to incline his ear to a proverb and solve his riddle to the music of the lyre. Now, it's very interesting, you know, the, the word riddle, we think in English, and, and the, the word in Hebrew actually reflects this very much as well. It, it pretty much denotes something that is perplexing, right? Something that is puzzling, something enigmatic. It's something that's difficult to figure out and understand. And, and there's, just, there's many things like that in the world that we live in. And I think in verse 5 and 6, it kind of it expands on what that might be. Um, as we look at that, it's one long question, and I think that this is this displays somewhat the riddle that the author is getting at. He says, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth, and again, and they boast in the abundance of their riches? Now, that, that's the question. I think that's the riddle that the author wants to answer. It's sort of the burden uh, of this text. And as we look at this, um, I, think, I think part of what makes it puzzling somewhat is that in this, there, and in, this in the Bible, in, the, in this, all throughout, that there are two contrasting groups here. On the one hand, you have the author. He, he refers to himself in the first person, but I think throughout this psalm, he actually, he really represents um, an entire group. I think he speaks on behalf of faithful people of God and, and all of them, right? I, I think he, he, he speaks in our place, so to speak. And on the other hand, in this, you see the other group, uh, it's, it's really the unfaithful. Sometimes the Bible says the, the righteous and the wicked. There's, there's two groups. In this case, the unfaithful are those who surround the faithful with their iniquity, which is just another way to say sin, and they also, they also trust in their wealth and they boast in their riches. So these two groups are contrasted here and contrasted throughout the rest of the psalm. But I think what makes this a bit puzzling is that the initial contrast here, the author begins by looking at the differences between the earthly circumstances of these two groups. And it is a puzzling one. And the reason it's puzzling, I think, is because the faithful are the ones who find themselves in times of trouble. It's the faithful who find themselves under duress. It's the faithful who seem to have reason to be afraid. And on the other hand... It seems that the unfaithful have it easy. Despite their iniquity, they're allowed to prosper and, and even to boast in the wealth that they have. And that just seems really backwards. But that's the way the world is, isn't it? And, and the reason it seems backwards is that surely what we know to be true about God would make us expect that those who are faithful to Him would be the ones to prosper in this life. And that those who are unfaithful to Him, would be the, they'd be the ones to, to suffer. They'd be the ones to have difficulty and hardship, right? That's not the case. It's not the case in our world today, necessarily. It's never really been the case at any time. And it's puzzling sometimes. As God's people, often we, we suffer, we go through difficulties. There's, there's no promise that we're going to have earthly prosperity. There's no promise that our lives are going to be easy. Sometimes we look out at the world and it seems that everyone else has an easier life than we do. And it's puzzling. But I think, I think in the rest of this psalm, the author is going to give us a bit of an answer to this. And he can, the way he does it is he continues to compare and contrast these two groups, but the viewpoint shifts. Instead of looking at these two groups through the lens of their earthly circumstances, he begins to look at them through the lens of their eternal destinies. And that's important. 
Because it's only when we do that can we see this clearly. It's only when we do that that we see the fleeting nature of wealth or, or anything else which belongs strictly to this world. It's only when we do that will we, will we be able to truly see and seek after something which is much greater than any earthly wealth could give us. It's only when we do that that we will understand and live for the eternal reward that God has promised and provided for His people. So as we go through this, that's my hope that we're going to see, um, that we're going to look at the reality of eternity. You know, if I could just, you know, in one sentence, if I could give us kind of the big idea for the psalm, it would be this. I'd say that the wise man does not trust in earthly wealth, but he lives for an eternal reward. And following that, you know, a couple subpoints. Um, I think in really two sections of the psalm and two subpoints. The first one is going to be verses 7 through 14. I think the author is describing what I'm going to call the, the insufficiency of earthly wealth. And then in verses 15 through 20, it's going to talk about the sufficiency of the eternal God. Those are our first two points. So, so point number one, verses 7 through 14, if you're still there, it's going to be about the insufficiency of earthly wealth. Now, I want to continue. I want to make another clarification. I want to make this clear as I go through this. I don't think this psalm is teaching that money is a bad thing, okay? I don't think this psalm is condemning everyone who's wealthy. I don't think the Bible does that. I don't think it teaches that. I think it teaches that money is a necessary part of life and that money in itself is, is not really good or bad. In fact, I really in the right hands... And used with the right motives, money is a wonderful blessing. And it's a tremendous tool that can be used to advance God's kingdom and to bless other people. It can be a wonderful thing. However, when money is in the wrong hands, and when it's used for the wrong motives, it can become something that also is very dangerous and very deceitful. Sometimes it, it really can be like adding fuel onto the fire of the sinful desires that we already have. I, I, I'd say it's not, not so much bad, but it's, it's dangerous. And it's dangerous because it, it also can feed our pride and it can make us falsely believe that it can give us the things that we really need. So I'd say it's, it's not bad, but it's dangerous and it's insufficient. It's limited. When I say it's insufficient, what I mean is that it's limited in what it can do. It's limited in what it can provide. And I think that that is really the point of the psalmist in these verses. So I'm going to go, just starting in verses 7 through 9, I'm going to look at those, and I think we'll begin to see this. It says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of his life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So I think this is the first way in which wealth ultimately fails. Now, what these verses are teaching, essentially, um, it's really a poetic way to say that every man is going to die, and there is no amount of money that can prevent it. To say that no man can ransom another, or to give to God the price of his life, is to admit that the power of life and death belongs to God alone, and he will not be bribed by money. Deuteronomy 32, 39 with God as the speaker, he says that, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. 
I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. You know, one thing about wealth, if you find a wealthy man on the earth, his wealth might give him a great deal of influence and of power and authority. It might give him a great ability to control certain things on the earth. But when it comes before the Lord of the universe, that man is absolutely powerless. The Bible says that before God, all the nations of the earth are like a drop in the bucket and like dust on the scales. Earthly wealth is nothing to him. It cannot bribe him, and it can do nothing to stop death. Now, I once read a story about a man when I was preparing this, and I think it illustrates this very well. He's a man maybe you've heard of, if if you're a fan of history like me. Um, He was very influential. He was a French philosopher during the the period of the Enlightenment. He's known to history by his pen name, Voltaire. It's not his real name, but it's a pen name that he adopted. Now, this man was very influential in the thinking of his day. He was a very wealthy man. Uh, and he actually also, he was, a very, he was a very strong opponent of Christianity. He wrote absolutely scathing attacks on Christian doctrines, on the Bible, many things. I'll give you just one of them. There's many. One time he was asked about Jesus and, and he, he cursed him and he said that in 20 years Christianity will be no more. He said, I will single-handedly destroy what it took 12 apostles to build. That's some strong words. Now, in God's providence and by his grace, this man lived a long and a prosperous life. Long and prosperous. But eventually, just like all men, this man grew old. He began to deteriorate. And it's recorded that that one night, as he was getting very near to his death, he had a doctor with him right by his bedside, and he, and he was just despairing, and he cried out to this doctor, and he said, I have been abandoned by God and by man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will only give me six months more of life. And the doctor looked at, looked at him, good doctor, knew his condition, and he said, Sir, you cannot live six weeks This guy, for all of his wealth, for all of his mighty words, he's just like every other man. He he was powerless, unable to stop the ultimate and inevitable end which we will all face, which is death. So that's the first limitation. Wealth can do many things, but it cannot bribe God and it cannot stop death. And we'll continue. Uh, Verses 10 and 11. We'll go there. Now, continuing to speak of those who foolishly trust in their wealth, the author says, He sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Now, here's a couple more examples. No matter how much money you have, everyone's going to die. And nobody is going to be able to keep the money that they have. All of it, at the end of the day, whether you're wise or foolish, you're going to have to leave it to others. In fact, if you look at verse 11, I think this is what the author is saying. You know, the only thing 
at the end of the day, on this earth that you can actually secure, that you can actually possess, is your own grave. It says their graves are their homes forever. It's the only permanent real estate you can find. Even if we were to view wealth strictly from just an earthly perspective, the only thing that we will perpetually own on this earth is our own grave. The Bible says that man is dust, and to dust he will return. So that's another limitation. I'm going to continue. Uh, I think there's one more in verses 12 and 14, and I think this is uh, the strongest of them all. So verse 12, it says that man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. But like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. So I think this, this finishes his argument about earthly wealth. And up to this point in the psalm, I think it's been a pretty persuasive argument, but perhaps you're not as convinced as I am. Um, I mean, really, at the end of the day, I think all of us know that we're all going to die. Many people don't seem to be that afraid of death. We also know that all of our money is eventually going to be left to other people. It doesn't really scare us that much either. But there is something here in these verses that I think ought to make every reasonable man shake in his boots and tremble. In these verses, the author continues to describe the path of those who foolishly trust in wealth. And that path does not end in death. In fact, it's not really death that a man ought to fear. Instead, the path of the wicked ends here in a place which the author calls Sheol. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, which you're probably not, or if you find it confusing, maybe you've heard it before, that's okay. It's a word that is used pretty frequently in the Old Testament. Often, it is used uh, simply as just a a poetic way to say the grave or or to describe death. Sometimes it's it's just a, a softer way to say that. But in these verses, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's actually describing something a little, bit, a little bit beyond just the grave or death. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I'm just going to give the main one. In verse 14, Sheol is described as, as the destination of those with foolish confidence. And in the last clause, it says, it, it is the place where their form shall be consumed. Now, one could argue there that that just refers to you know, bodily decay in the grave. But I think verse 15 makes clear that that's not the case. In verse 15, the author, representing the faithful and the righteous, he says that his soul will be ransomed from the power of Sheol. So there's a contrast there. Sheol here represents the destination of the wicked and those who foolishly trust in their wealth, where they will be consumed. And it's the place on the other hand, from which the righteous will be delivered. So I don't think it just means death here. I actually, I, I, I very much agree with the ESV study Bible and their footnotes. They describe it. Um, it says that the use of the word sheol, sheol represents the grim place of destruction for the wicked. Now, just to put that in 
in modern vernacular, uh, it's talking about the reality of, of hell and, and judgment that's there. Now, what I want us to see from that, I want us to see that the biggest problem that every man and every person in this room has is not that he will eventually die. The biggest problem that every man has is that one day he will stand before the judgment throne of a holy God. And that's a problem because the Bible says that it's against this holy God that every man has sinned and every man has fallen short of his glory. And against this holy God, every man has rebelled and gone his own way. And every man will stand before him. And the Bible says about this holy God that when, it, when, when each of us stands before him, that he will know every deed that we have ever done. He will know every word that has ever come forth from our mouths. He will know every thought that has ever passed through our minds. That's our biggest problem. God is holy, we are not. God is righteous and we are not. And because he is holy, because he is righteous, he doesn't just overlook sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye to wickedness, but he sees it. And when he sees it, it provokes in him a holy indignation, a holy and just wrath. And that is our biggest problem. Our biggest problem for, for every man is the wrath of God. And because of that wrath, apart from Christ, an eternal judgment. So wealth is insufficient. At the end of the day, it can't solve our greatest problem. It can do nothing to appease God's wrath. And it cannot meet our greatest need. Now, I want to stop there just for one second, okay? I want you to consider something. I want you to see that if there is indeed an answer to that problem, if something were given to us that is able to meet this need, if there were truly a way for this wrath of God to be extinguished and for the grace of God to be poured out for us, then whatever it is that could do this for us would without doubt be the greatest treasure in all of the earth. There could be nothing possibly which would be more valuable and more precious than this thing or this person. You see that? You see how valuable that is? That brings us to the second point. Point number two. The sufficiency of the eternal God. When I say that wealth is insufficient, I mean that it's not enough. When I say that God is sufficient, I mean that He is enough. As Ethan Zillinger would say, one of my favorite lines, He is more than enough. Right? He's more than enough. So verse 15. Here, here is some, some good news and some gospel hope for us. Verse 15. This verse... It is, the, it is the pinnacle of this psalm. 
I think it is the climax of the argument of the author, and it represents the greatest news that any man has ever heard. This verse contains the greatest hope of every Christian, and it begins with the two greatest words in the entire Bible. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. You know, I've had a summer to think about this. Uh, I am insufficient to comprehend all of the wonderful truth that is here. And what I do comprehend, I am insufficient to communicate to you guys. Um, But I am going to do my best. Now, I want to begin just by pointing out that that the author in this verse uses the same word that he used in verses 7 and 8. He uses the word ransom. In those verses, it's described as something that money cannot do. In, these, in this verse, it's described as something that God can do. But what does that word mean? Well, at that time, the word ransom, actually, it was really an economic term. It was often used in connection with markets for indentured servants, um, slaves, so to speak. And it was used to denote a price which someone would pay in order to secure the freedom of one of these indentured servants. Even, even if, you, you know, if you're familiar, the word is still used somewhat like that today. You know, if you watch crime shows or, or, or movies, you're probably familiar with the idea of a ransom price, a price you pay to secure the freedom of another person. And in the Bible, this became very much a common term which the biblical authors would use to describe our salvation. And I think it's a very fitting one. In this case, the author says that God himself will ransom him from the power of Sheol. Another way to say that is that God will purchase him and deliver him and secure his freedom. He now belongs to God, and God will receive him. Now, in those earlier verses, the author made the point that no man can ransom another There is nothing that he could give to God that could possibly suffice because the redemption of man is a task which exceeds all the power and all the resources that any man could have. He has no ability to ransom himself and there is nothing that he could offer to God that is worthy enough to ransom him from the powers of death and of hell. If man is to be ransomed, it must come from God and that ransom must be something which is more valuable than all the wealth of the world. And my friends, in the time period where we live, we have the privilege of knowing exactly what that ransom was, which God gave for us. This psalmist, he writes hundreds of years before the first coming of Jesus. He does not have all of the privilege that we do now I think based on what God had revealed to this point, he is able to believe and to proclaim this truth. He likely has a great hope in the coming Messiah, but he looks forward and he sees dimly. We look backwards and we see clearly, right? We know the ransom that was given for us. 
Jesus, in his own words, in Mark 10, 45, and Matthew 20, 24, he said of himself that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Peter, in the first chapter of his epistle, he reminds the churches that he writes to that they have been ransomed from their futile ways, and they've been ransomed not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. You see, my friends, there is nothing in this entire world which is more valuable and more precious than the life of that man who 2,000 years ago was offered up on that cross for our sin and for our salvation. And because that man's life was so valuable, that's the reason why his one life is able to ransom so many is able to cover the sins of a countless multitude. And it's because of who he is. You see, if it were you and I on that cross, it would be meaningless. If there were a million angels on that cross, it would be meaningless. It had to be him. He was the unique and the beloved Son of God, both truly God and truly man. He had to be truly man in order to pay the penalty that belonged to man. And he had to be truly God in order that he could endure the penalty that belonged to man. And as the God-man, his life was of unlimited value, and he offered it up to the Father as a completely sufficient ransom for all that the Father has given him. There is no thing and no one in the universe that we ought to esteem more highly. There is no thing and no one in the universe which we ought to love more dearly. It's all about Him. There are many things when it comes to our faith in Christ that that we can emphasize too much. There are many things that we can talk about too much but we cannot overemphasize him and we cannot speak of him too much. The Bible teaches about this Jesus. In Colossians 1, it says that that he is preeminent in all things. It says that he was before all things, that in him all things hold together. It says that all things were made by him and for him. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says that it is to him that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord over all. Jesus said of himself that to him has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis 49.10, it says that to him belongs the obedience of the nations. Psalm 2 says that the ends of the earth are his possession. The prophet Daniel says that to him has been given an everlasting dominion and a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. He says that all peoples and nations and languages 
will serve him. That's what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And it also teaches, again in the book of Philippians, it teaches that this Jesus, he came to us. It says that he took the form of a servant, that he was born in the likeness of men, and that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's this same glorious Jesus who humbled himself, who lived in this sinful and fallen world, and who went to the cross in our place. It's this Jesus who was mocked, who was spit upon, who was crucified. This Jesus, he was a perfect ransom. In our place, he offered to the Father a perfect life. When the Apostle Peter says that he was like a lamb without spot or blemish, what that means is that in this earthly life, he was without sin. It means that not for one second did he fail to love the Father as, he, as we ought to. Not for a second did he fail to love the Father with all of his heart, all of his mind, all of his soul, and all of his strength. And not for one second did he fail to love his neighbor as himself. He never had a crooked deed. He never had a crooked word. He never had a crooked thought. He never did one thing for the wrong motive. I look at my own life. I, I question whether I've ever done one thing for the right motive. <laughs> but he never did one thing for the wrong motive. He was perfect. And because of his perfect life, he was able to offer to the Father in our place a perfect, atoning death. And now the Bible teaches that for all who believe in him, all who turn to him, his perfect life becomes theirs. And their sinful life be becomes his. God now sees that person as possessing the perfect righteousness of Christ, as though they lived his life. And he now sees the sin of that person as belonging to Christ. See, on that cross, God the Father treated Jesus like he lived our life. But now he sees our sin as belonging to him and completely and fully atoned for. He's a perfect ransom. My friends, that, this is the good news of the gospel. And it is a greater treasure than anything else in this world. There's nothing more valuable. There's nothing which we should think more about. There's nothing which we should, should so cause us to rejoice and be glad. There's nothing so beautiful. Even if we look at this psalm, the author's point is clear. In fact, we could look at the world today and you could find the poorest child of God in this entire world. And you could honestly and truly say of that person that they have more wealth than the richest man on this earth. Wealth is, is insufficient. All the things in this psalm that, that money cannot buy, cannot secure, Christ gives to us freely. Money has no power over death. 
and hell, but Christ does. Money can do nothing to appease the wrath of God, but Christ can, and He has. He can give us everything we truly need. Now, that's the first half of verse 15. Um, I want to go to the second half. I think this is the greatest treasure of all. He says, God will ransom my soul from Sheol. He will receive me. Now, the greatest gift, it's not even that Christ can save us from God's judgment. The greatest gift is that He can bring us into the very presence of the true and the living God. That's the greatest gift of the gospel. It's the greatest hope that a man could ever have. One day we will be with Him. We will be in His presence. It says that He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. There will be no more pain, no more mourning, no more grief. We will see Him as He truly is. And that's the greatest gift. Now, this is the last thing I'm going to say. I want, I want us all to consider this. Our life on this earth, the Bible says that it is a breath and a vapor. It is a brief moment in light of an eternal existence. Don't waste it. Don't look to this world and to the wealth of this world to satisfy you or to be enough for you. In this world, ultimately, there is nothing for us. I want you to consider this for a second. A brief time from now in the scope of history, let's say 150 years, it is very likely that there won't be a single person in this room who is remembered and who is thought about. If you don't believe me, I want you to try something. Ask yourself, how many generations back in your family do you even know their names? Maybe four, maybe five. See, all of us, we are going to die and we're going to be forgotten from this earth. Our reputation, our wealth, the house we live in, it's not going to last. So what I'd encourage you, live your life for things that will last. The people around you, they will last. You know, I once, I heard it said about the famous, famous pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor for many years in London. Many years. He said that he never once met a man on his deathbed who ever said, that he looked back on his life and he regretted reading the Bible too much. Never met a man that said that. He said he never met a man that looked back on his life and regretted that he spent too much time in prayer. Never met a man that, that looked back on his life and, and thought to himself that he had invested himself too much in the, in the good of other people. Never, never met one man that did that. So my friends, don't... Don't, don't live your life and come to the end of it and look back and realize only then or you should have realized much sooner. 
Let us live with eyes fixed on eternity, hoping in the gospel and hoping in the great promises of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are more than enough for us. You have been gracious to us and patient with us. God, forgive us for our earthly-mindedness. God, would You grow us, would You fix our eyes on You and the hope that can be found in Christ alone. Lord, we love You, we thank You. I pray that as we go forth from today, that we would be compelled towards true and genuine worship of You and true and genuine obedience to You. We love You, Lord, we thank You. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.